From number five chambers, I'm Richard Kimblin, and this is the planning podcast, which today turns to town and village greens. It's a topic right at the boundary, the interface between planning problems, property law, and a topic which deals with the conflicts in the user of land, as between those with a recreational use and those undertaking what they thought was an established use on their own land. We explore that topic area via TW Logistics, assisted enormously by Rowena Meager, planning and environmental barrister at Number 5 Chambers, and also an inspector who sits at Town and Village Green Inquiries, along with Sinead Davis, planning and environmental barrister at Number 5 Chambers, who takes us through the facts which bring us ultimately to the Supreme Court and some clarification as to what give and take there is to be in these cases. Good afternoon, Rowena. How are you keeping? Yes, very well, thank you. How are you? Really good, really good. And Sinead, you're with us. How are you? I am. Good afternoon, Richard. Very well, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, good. Now I'm going to learn more about village greens and town and village greens because there's this case tw logistics have you read it yes yes (laughs) Ah. i would hope so you're way ahead of me (laughs) where are we with with this it's got to the supreme court but let's let's start a bit earlier on um not my thing normally the chancery division but uh TW Logistics went on an excursion to the Chancery Division, it seems, in 2017. Why were they there? Thanks, Victor. So this litigation is about um, a landowner who is trying to overcome the registration of land as a town and village green. Um, the appellant, TW Logistics, uh, owned a working port at Mistley, um, and that was land which had been used for the passage of port vehicles, including heavy goods vehicles and the temporary storage of cargo on the quayside. Land in question was some 200 square metres, which was relatively close to the water edge. And alongside some of these commercial activities which had been going on on the land, um, the land had been used by local inhabitants to, for example, walk their dogs, to stop and have a chat on the quayside and for general recreation. There was an application for the registration of the land for a town and village green made by the applicant. And that was triggered by um, an event which was essentially the appellant erecting a 1.8 metre high fence. That in itself had been erected on the advice of the health and safety executive who were concerned about people uh, falling into the water. Um, An inspector conducted an inquiry and found that three key ingredients for Uh, establishing a a town and or registering, I should say, a town and village green had been made out. That is, firstly, that there'd been 20 years use. Secondly, that that use was as of right. And the third is that it was for recreational purposes. TW Logistics then applied to the High Court to challenge that registration. We've got those three key features which you've outlined, and people will be generally familiar with the idea of prescription and that after length of time, that can have certain consequences. But we've got here 20 years as of right and for recreational purposes. Now, I have to say that the first two aren't the most fascinating, but for recreational purposes, I noticed that there was reference there to crabbing. Yes. (laughs) 
and that 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 one of the recreational purposes relied upon was crabbing from the from the edge of the key and that that it seems if you do it for long enough can put somebody out of complete control of their land is that what happened that's exactly what happened, Richard. There were examples of use of such as uh, dog walking too. And yeah, crabbing was one of the examples which the inspector relied upon to make his decision to register the land. Okay. So essentially in the High Court, they lost. They put up their fence. It was challenged. An inspector came along. And Rowena, you're experienced in being such an inspector, aren't you? I am indeed, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. And so were you appointed by PINs to do that or is there some other process? No. Um, generally speaking, there, there there is a pilot scheme operating where PINs is the party that appoints inspectors in certain areas. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but I think Devon somewhere is one of those pilot scheme areas. But generally speaking, once an application is made to the Commons Registration Authority, it's a matter for the Commons Registration Authority to then uh, process the application. And generally speaking, if there is an objection by the landowner, and that objection has some grounds, uh, some meat to it, if you like, then in those circumstances, ordinarily, a Commons Registration Authority will appoint an independent barrister um, that specialises in this area with a view to them providing directions, setting out the structure of the way that the uh, process will work, and ultimately sitting at a public inquiry. And then making a report but the the inspector isn't the decision maker the decision maker is still the commons registration authority but the inspector produces a report that analyzes the evidence and the law and so on and and will conclude with a recommendation generally speaking it it would be very unusual for a commons registration authority not to follow uh, the recommendation of the inspector but but as you know from the planning world that if the matter goes before a committee rather than is delegated extraordinary things can happen <laughs> no when non-lawyers become Surely involved not. in the decision making process so in this case it went fence objection inquiry recommendation recommendation followed high court challenge that's exactly right happens, yes so that gets us to the point that Shined just kindly explained to us and then the next stage Shined must have been the court of appeal yes that's right Richard yes yeah, so um following the decision in the high court the appellant TW just six then found their way found themselves in the court of appeal so that's the second appeal that they'd had to undertake so again in the court of appeal the the appellant uh, lost um and the Court of Appeal reminded the appellant of the decision in Lewis and Redcar, which essentially explained that the rights of the landowner um, continued, notwithstanding the registration of the land as a town and village green. In essence, the landowner was entitled to continue its pre-existing activities, so movement of commercial vehicles and the like, provided that they did not interfere unduly with the public's recreational rights to use that land. In essence, the Court of Appeal talked about the principle of give and take. So nothing necessarily was inconsistent between the registration of the town and village green and the landowner's rights. OK, but they lost and off to the Supreme Court. And uh, in mid-February, we get the Supreme Court dealing with some of the issues that had cropped up earlier, it seems. And Rowena, essentially, what was the Supreme Court asked to rule on? Well, by the time it reached the Supreme Court, there were three grounds of appeal. The second ground, which I'll come to in just a moment, was the central one, the one that was critical, and to a large point rehashed much of what was argued in the Court of Appeal. But ground one, the appellant asked, is registration barred if it would criminalise the landowner's continuing activities? And the Supreme Court ultimately said that the answer to that 
would depend perhaps upon their answer to ground two. And in the event, they considered that it was unnecessary and inappropriate for them to make any finding in respect of ground one. Ground two was the critical one, and that was whether or not TW logistics commercial activities were criminalised post-registration as a town and village green. That really was the meat of the decision in this case. And, and there was a third third ground, which was pretty cursorily dismissed in respect of whether or not the local inhabitants' use of the land was in fact as of right. And what the Supreme Court said is that that really was an appeal on an issue of fact and it wasn't appropriate for the court in that case. And they said that if that ground was an attempt to reopen the question of deference where local inhabitants defer to the landowner in its use of its land, then that was a matter that was already definitively determined in the Supreme Court case of Lewis and Redcar. So we only one of those grounds, ground two, really forms the meat of the judgment in this case. Well, just we, before we go away from this idea of deference, has that got anything to do with golf? It does indeed, because that was what Lewis and Redcar was all about. Yeah. It was it was um, an application to register a green that was in fact an operational golf course. One of the issues that arose in Lewis and Redcar was the landowner's argument that, well, you know, when somebody was on the green, and, and, and forgive me because my, my golfing terminology is non-existent, but when golfers were playing on the green, driving, I think it is, they would sort of shout to members of the public that were wanting to cross it with their dog and say, wait a moment. And so the argument went that because the local inhabitants were deferring to the golfers, that meant that their use couldn't have been as of right. But the Supreme Court wasn't having any of that. They said it was simply a matter of give and take between the two competing users. One didn't essentially neutralise the other. And that was something that had been touched upon briefly in an earlier, also very famous case, the Trap Grounds case, that Lord Hoffman had also expressed the view that there would be a need or there was sometimes a need for give and take between landowner and local inhabitants indulging in their lawful sports and pastimes. Lawful sports and pastimes. OK. Going back to this main point that you identified for yeah. us, the key points in the case, what you were saying was landowners, TW Logistics, were really concerned that if they carried on doing what had always been lawful from their point of view, their lawful activity of using the key, yeah. that they would be committing an offence. And uh, that would be an offence under some rather old legislation, wouldn't it? Yes, um, interestingly, well, they, they cited five pieces of legislation, in fact, in support of that argument. But the two critical ones and the ones that really formed the um, basis of the judgment were the, what they call cumulatively the Victorian Statutes, which is the Enclosure Act of 1857 and the Commons Act of 1876. And between those two acts, what they do is they essentially criminalise nuisances committed on common land, town and village greens, things like that. I think what's perhaps interesting about it is that town and village greens, as we know them, they only became a, a creature of statute in 19 or after 1965. That was the first piece of legislation, the Commons Registration Act, that allowed for the formal creation and registration of town and village greens. And yet these Victorian statutes are, are referable to uh, common land and village greens and the like going back decades before. And again, it was the Trap Grounds case where the question was first asked whether or not these Victorian statutes 
actually applied to these new statutory greens. And Lord Hoffman again there confirmed, well, the, the House of Lords, but it was it, it was in the, the judgment of Lord Hoffman that it was dealt with mainly, confirmed that the Victorian statutes did apply. Mm. In, in this case, the question was whether TWL's continued use of the key would constitute a nuisance um, in contravention of the Victorian statutes. They also cited two pieces of health and safety legislation, which didn't feature particularly in the decision, not least because the court said that the the, the, the fact of registration didn't alter the applicability of the uh, health and safety legislation that applied pre-registration, whereas the Victorian statutes only applied once registration had occurred. And they also relied upon Section 34 of the Road Traffic Act, which makes it an offence to drive on common land, etc., without lawful authority. But again, that was dismissed much more quickly. The two central questions really being about the criminalisation of their continued activity under the Victorian legislation. So uh, would, would TWL be allowed to drive a truck along their quay? just as they used to before registration. Yes, that's what the court, the, the Supreme Court found. In terms of why they would be allowed to do it, what the Supreme Court really considered in some detail was how the Victorian statutes in particular to, were to be interpreted as against the statutory background that created Village Greens. In terms of the Victorian legislation and whether that would essentially criminalise driving your truck, performing all sorts of other port-style duties and activities, it wouldn't criminalise it as long as the activities that TWL continued to engage in were consistent with the activities that they engaged in prior. That was because the status of their ownership and what they were lawfully entitled to do hadn't changed by virtue of registration. And given that registration was based upon concurrent use, if you like, they're being used by the landowner and the local inhabitants, there was no reason why registration would preclude the owner continuing to use their land as they had. And, and again, it comes back to this question of give and take the idea that you can have two concurrent uses side by side, as long as there's an element of give and take. Now, of course, once land is registered as a village green, then in theory, that perhaps enlarges the scope, if you like, of the rights of the local inhabitants. Okay, so it's not just if people were only crabbing before they they could walk their dogs after they could go along and fish. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Okay. So that didn't limit the the nature of the right that they acquired. Essentially, once a village green is registered, then the local inhabitants have the right to indulge in lawful sports and pastimes on the land, and and of course the landowner continues to be entitled to do what they've done. The difficulty would arise if the landowner greatly expanded its activities, whether by volume or whether in terms of type, such that its use interfered with the local inhabitants' rights to recreate on the town and village green. Right. At, at the moment, it's sounding to me like a fudge. <laughs> uh, at the moment, the local people who engage in these pastimes have, have obtained a tick. Yes, you can do that. And indeed, you can do things which you didn't used to do. And those who were there previously can carry on doing what they were doing. And you're to give and take. Yes. And that's it. Uh, and on the face of it, it might sound like a bit of a fudge, but I think it's just in reality a recognition that where you've got two sets of people, parties, whatever, that have each got rights over a piece of land, then there has got to be a way of facilitating that continued use without 
criminalizing it in essence mm. um and, and really it's it's i think just a pragmatic response perhaps to the right. situation where you've got two competing uses well that's i think that that's an amazing set of circumstances but i i have one question first of all which is given what tw logistics objectives must have been what what do you both think do you think that ultimately they won i think the headline point is that they're not necessarily any worse off than they were before in terms of their use of the land. So they're still able to drive their trucks over it. They're still able to operate as a um, a supporting facility for the port. I think where perhaps they're worse off is if they were intending to do any other kinds of works with the land. So they, they as the landowner, now won't have free reign, if you like, to do as they please. They, their use of the land is subject to the use of others who would be using the land as a town and village green. So, I mean, plainly, their claim and their two appeals were each dismissed. Uh, but they, they might say, well, we've established that we are able to carry on doing what we were before. And we're not, in fact, impeded by uh, the activities of the crabbers. <laughs> but the other thing which occurred to me here was that this is different to other cases which are really about people trying to make sure that a developer doesn't come along and carry out operational development, which changes the character by reason of building things of the of the village green. And that's not not this case. This case is all about activities, a use of land in planning terms, which is treated in a rather different way isn't it ultimately what we've got is give and take and not criminalization provided not a nuisance rather rather different sort of case to to many of those cases where people are trying to fend off development well i think richard that there's there's a slight distinction between those two scenarios it's right that this is about use and i think what's what's particularly helpful about this case is it does no matter how fudgy it might appear to be, it does at least give some clarification as to the scope of the rights of both the local inhabitants and the landowner once registration has taken place. And so when you say, have they in fact lost? Yes, they have, because what they wanted to do was to get this piece of land deregistered. So it was no longer subject to that registration and all that goes with it. And even though they can carry on doing what they have done and and very likely had no intention of doing anything different. The reality is that that piece of land is then saddled forevermore with the the fact of registration. And this is a privately owned port. I mean, who knows if at some point in time in the future, TW Logistics wouldn't want to sell it. And selling a piece of land that's subject to a town and village green registration could be quite a disincentive uh, to any purchaser. Whereas in terms of development, of course, Registration by itself means that development is prohibited after registration because the Victorian statutes would prevent it. But often what you see in village green applications is people making applications to essentially stop development in order that the Victorian statutes can apply and therefore development will be thwarted. And very often what you get is an application for this kind of registration follows a planning or did follow a planning application where the local inhabitants objected and didn't succeed in in thwarting the planning application. But that 
that process or that use of this legislation is something that was prevented once the Great and Infrastructure Act made amendments to the Commons Act, uh, because that was when they introduced these, these planning related trigger events that then prevent people or take away people's right to make an application to register a village green. Right. So so that particular cottage industry is, uh, <laughs> has uh, gone into reverse as a result of the Growth and Infrastructure Act. Well, certainly. I mean, if, if people want to uh, make applications to register town and village greens to prevent development, they've got to be pretty well ahead of the game because one of the trigger events is the publication of an application for permission. It's the appearance of that piece of land in a local development plan document. They've got to have a, a good degree of foresight if that's going to be their reason, because if any of those things have happened in Schedule 1A to the 2006 Act, then they're not going to be able to make the application. That said, if somebody makes an application, it's refused, it goes to appeal, it's refused, it's JR'd, it's refused. If all of those things happen, then a terminating event occurs and then it's possible. But the length of time that that will take and the likelihood of the landowner having fenced it and stopped people running around on it is almost certainly going to mean that the criteria set out in the 2006 Commons Act can't be met because it requires an application to be made within a year of the cessation of use. Right. But but on this case, it seems that it was the erection of the fence which triggered triggered yeah triggered lots of work for lawyers well absolutely because obviously the inhabitants were incensed at the idea that they couldn't go crabbing anymore and strolling along the quay and they obviously got wind of the town and village green legislation and the ability to make the application and and that was the answer to their prayers i think wow there we are The only thing I have got is two kind of lessons. I don't know whether that would be useful. Yeah, what are they? <laughs> so the first is that the concept of a village green is much wider than kind of the bucolic village green that you might expect. And the second is if you're buying some land and it is registered, it's difficult to know exactly what the rights ex- exercisable over the land might be. It, it's obviously, if, if it's registered, it doesn't say against the registration, does it? Other than local sports and pastimes, it doesn't say exactly kind of what the nature of that use might be. So it occurred to me, Rowena, that um, not all village greens are necessarily bucolic green spaces, which are in the middle of villages. Are there any other interesting observations that you have from the case? Um, I think the key point is the fact it's it's really is the first decision that we have that really explores the scope of the rights of the parties post-registration. So it's it's novel in that regard, in the sense that it's scrutinised the effect that this legislation, the Victorian legislation and, and, and other bits of legislation might have in respect of the landowner. And it's, it's confirmed, really, that the landowner doesn't lose all of their rights, that what wasn't criminal beforehand doesn't become criminal by virtue of this legislation, as long as, as, long as what they continue to do is consistent with what they did beforehand. So to that extent, it's been very helpful. In terms of your reference to this doesn't fit with the archetypal sort of idea of village green, it always makes me giggle because whenever you look at any of these supreme or house, they all start with this sort of glorious um, spiel about, oh, one imagines a village green to be... (laughs) If I remember rightly, the Trap Grounds case had a really good sort of description and it's all very romanticised and... You know, this sort of this historic idea of of a square of grass in the middle of your village where people play cricket and have picnics and things like that. And yes, I mean, there have been a huge number of village greens that have been registered that bear absolutely no resemblance at all to that sort of sentimentalist view, like a pile of rocks, a beach, I mean, all sorts, you know, a a concrete key (laughs) and, and many others indeed. 
So uh, I am now so much better educated. Thank you very much indeed, Rowena. Thank you very much indeed, as ever, Shuned. Our pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. That was the planning podcast from Number 5 Chambers. We trust that you found that practical and on point. If there are other topics you need us to cover, other topics you want us to cover, let us know. We always appreciate the feedback. But until then, stay safe, stay busy, and goodbye.